Poverty is everywhere, but we like to pretend it doesn't exist and could never happen to us. Yet 38 million Americans live in poverty. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss the invisible poor and share a story of a woman who sees home as more than a physical space, and a story of a homeless man who wants to be seen. And later in the show, we'll be joined by community organizer Dorica Watson. Most cultures have a prejudice toward the poor. I've noticed this when I travel. I've had translators in China and Cambodia who wondered why I would want to talk to people who worked in a garment factory or who lived in a slum. I've had plenty of translators and friends who said things like, they talk uneducated and they do things because they don't know better. For many of my translators, the poor in their country are as invisible to them as the poor in my own had been to me until I started to volunteer. Researchers found that tourists on slum tours in India looked at slum residents as a positive part of a community and culture, while they perceived the homeless in their own communities as lazy or addicts. We are harsher critics of the poor in our own communities. The narrative of the American dream, where if you work hard, you will succeed, lends itself to an undercurrent of the inverse. Those who don't work hard aren't successful, as if poverty is solely a condition of lack of effort. We fear poverty, we are made uncomfortable by poverty, we judge people, we ignore people, we put the responsibility on the poor and not on ourselves until we meet them. And that's kind of where the Facing Project started. The Facing Project has its origins in the topic of poverty. JR and I both volunteered for an organization that worked to break the cycle of poverty in our own community, Muncie, Indiana. Yeah, the experience broke down all of my stereotypes regarding poverty, actually including ones that I didn't even realize I had until I was a part of Teamwork for Quality Living, the organization that partnered with us on the very first Facing Project. So, so often in our nation, we judge people who live in poverty or who are immigrants, who are addicts, yet often we don't know a single person who faces that reality. And until we have a face and a name and a story to match with the statistic, are we really at a place to understand the issue, create policy or interventions? Facing Poverty told the stories of those in our community who lived in poverty. In fact, 21% of citizens of Delaware County, where Muncie is located, live in poverty, and 26% are the working poor who struggle to meet basic needs on a monthly basis. Not seeing these individuals or understanding their situations, knowing their names, their hopes, dreams, was to ignore almost half of our fellow citizens. I was once naive enough to think that if someone is homeless, they don't have a home. That statement alone, that homeless means no home, may seem counterintuitive, but our first story changed my perspective forever. Sonia Johnson was living in the YWCA when we met her, and she taught us that home is more than just a physical space. At 17 years old, Edward Johnson was only interested in one thing, a one-night stand, while 16-year-old Thelma Durton searched for someone to love. One thing led to another, and they found out they were expecting me, Sonia Johnson. My mother didn't know what to do. She was determined to marry my father, whether they loved each other or not. So they married, and I was born in Gary, Indiana. My father worked all the time to make ends meet, and my mother didn't know how to handle a newborn and a new marriage. She would leave me alone for hours at a time, either for work 
or for drugs. My grandmother dropped by unexpectedly one day and she found me in my crib, dirty, hungry, soiled, and all alone. From that point on, I lived with my grandparents. My grandparents loved me and gave me everything I needed, but they couldn't give me the one thing I craved, my biological parents' love. After high school, I began to seek out my biological parents. First, I found my mother. She was beautiful, and I hoped she would tell me she loved me. The entire time we talked, she never once asked about how I was doing or anything about me. I did not get the I love you or the apology that I hoped for. This devastated me. I went back to my car and I cried so hard that I couldn't drive. So then I set out to meet my father. I knew he had to want me. Edward Johnson had become a big-time drug dealer. He had a fancy gold Cadillac and plenty of money. He owned an arcade, which he used as a front for his drug business. I found love. Conditional love. I wanted to do anything to get my father's love. I went to school during the day, but was a drug runner for him at night. I had fancy clothes and a fancy car. I started drinking at 20 years old to fit in, and I partied every night. Drinking and partying so much made it hard to get to school on time, so I dropped out of college. In my mid-20s, I had no future, no plans, and fake love. Nothing real. I kept drinking more to make myself feel good. I was estranged from my grandparents who had raised me. I was all alone. While at a friend's party, I engaged in a one-night stand that resulted in my beautiful daughter, Apollonia. But just like my father, this man didn't want anything to do with either of us. But in my daughter, I found someone who would love me. I did my best to make ends meet, but it wasn't enough. I went back to drinking to drown my pain. I left my daughter with my grandmother so I could party. At the age of 26, I was pregnant again with my daughter, Mercedes. I loved being a mom, but I was still empty inside. And I continued to numb it by drinking every day. I was a functioning alcoholic. I thought I hid it well, but my grandmother and oldest daughter knew everything. I just went to work, drank, slept, repeat. For years, this went on. My father died from an overdose of crack at 45. And then my grandparents both died. I was in a dark place and couldn't get out of bed. I prayed for God to just take me. I started partying even more. I switched from beer to vodka because vodka numbed the pain quicker. Eventually, I attempted to commit suicide and was admitted into a mental health facility. My daughter Mercedes came to rescue me, but when she showed up, she barely recognized me. I had lost a lot of weight and only weighed 95 pounds. So my daughter brought me here 
to live in Muncie. My life was a mess and I needed to pick up the pieces. I found a home and a family at the YWCA. The people here have loved me unconditionally. They love me through the good and the bad. Here at the YWCA, we are family. Actually, they treat me better than my own family. These are my sisters, and we look out for each other. A lot of time, when people think of a homeless shelter, they see images of dirty, stinky addicts who are not motivated to get on the right track. The YWCA is helping to change that stereotype. Just because we live at the YWCA does not mean that we're worthless or less human. We may not have a lot and we may be without a permanent home, but we look out for each other and make sure no one goes without their necessities. Recently, I started the boutique. We set up an area in the building where the other ladies who live here can come in and shop through donated professional clothes for free. Earlier today, one of our residents had to go to court. I saw her walk into the common area and I said, girl, you can't go to court looking like that. Let's get you fixed up. So we took her into the boutique and got her dressed properly to stand before the judge. Then we all walked with her to the courthouse and supported her. Right now, we're waiting for her to come back to the YWCA with good news about her case. We look out for each other like that. We're a building full of women and children. So, of course, we have our differences of opinion and don't always get along. Life is not always rainbows here, but we're learning ways of dealing with conflict. We've started a girl talk group and we meet most days over coffee and talk through our problems and issues. It really helps to be in a community where we can all talk about what we're going through and find ways to handle them. Even though we live in a shelter, we do what all families do. We play games, we watch TV or movies, we exercise, take walks, we swim in the pool, we sing karaoke, we do laundry, and we go grocery shopping together. If someone here needs to go to work or school, we watch the kids while they do that. If someone needs help practicing for a job interview, we help them do that. If someone needs to talk down from making a bad decision, we do that too. Everyone has their role. My time here at the YWCA has been one of the best parts of my life. And I love this place. It has truly saved my life. I am on the path out of the shelter program and into permanent housing. By the end of this year, I will be living on my own. Now, that can be scary. A lot of us have never really lived on our own before. But I'm working through the program at the YWCA, and I'll be ready to be on my own. Even after I move out, I'll still have a family with those who are here. I'll have access to support services to be sure I stay on my feet and don't end up back in a shelter again. Last weekend, I visited my daughter, Mercedes. I didn't have to tell her I was sober. She could look at me and tell immediately. I still have some work I need to do in my family relationships, though. I'm not very close with my oldest daughter. I've been sober 
since August 15th of 2015. But she's seen me at my worst. I can't be mad at her for being distant right now. One day I hope to prove myself to her and we can be closer. Home isn't just a place where you live. I've lived a lot of different places that didn't feel like home. Home is a place where people support one another and go through life together. For my first time in my life, I found my home. And for that, I am truly grateful. Here at the YWCA, we don't call this place a shelter. It's our home. Our next story comes from Rome, Georgia, and like the first storyteller, Sonia, James has found home in an unexpected place, and his only request is simple. Treat him like any other person. Excuse me? What are you looking at? Do I look that different than you? Out here on the street, you might not see me at all. It's easier to look away. I'm not invisible. I'm a person of color. A big guy who loves to laugh with a great smile, I might add. My name is James. Thanks for asking. Why don't I just get a job? Just apply at McDonald's or a fast food joint. It might surprise you that I've held a job in the past. I haven't always been like this. I work with adolescents at Northwest Georgia Regional Hospital. And for three years, I even worked at Starbucks. How long have I been? What, homeless? It's fine, you may call me that, homeless. I have spent eight to nine years of the last 14 years without a place to belong. I have slept in hospitals to escape the heat of summers and camped out next to libraries at night. You'll meet a lot of us there. My family couldn't help me out, but friends became my family. I would be lost without them. And not lost like in wandering the streets without direction, but gone dead. How did I end up like this? My story is a little bit different than yours, but we're all built a hand and this one is mine. My deck is rigged with a series of adverse happenings and unfortunate circumstances which led me to where I am today. After graduating high school, I did a brief stint in community college studying computer science, but my grandma became real sick. I dropped out to take care of her. Her house burnt down, she moved to a nursing home, and I've been on the streets on and off ever since. Severe depression and anxiety have plagued me for years also. To some, depression is just an excuse, just another reason that I don't have work. With no job, no prospects, no place to stay, little available help from family, you'd be depressed too. I had no support system, and no one to motivate me or encourage me. I had no hope. Few truly understand how crippling severe depression can be. Everything kept piling up higher and higher. Eventually, I tried to end my life. I found help at Highland Rivers Health, a public health center that helps those with mental illness, addictions, and those in crisis situations. These people got me back on track. I started taking medication to soothe the depression and anxiety. I also received medication for congenitive heart failure, which thankfully increased my quality of and chances of life. 
The shelter I'm at now, the Davies Shelter, has been my favorite and has become my second home, or first rather. This place has given me hope and a second chance. Some of us don't always get one, a second chance, so I consider myself fortunate. The Davies Shelter has offered me hope in ways nothing else has. I'm around people who generally care for me. These people are like family. Here I belong. I finally have a support system and this helps stave off depression and motivates me to keep improving myself. I have to work towards something while I'm here, whether that is finding a job, making contacts, or actively trying to get better healthcare. When you have the necessities found in a home, it's easier to move forward. The Davis Shelter, in a way, allows me to remake myself. When you're constantly ignored or looked down upon with judgmental eyes, you begin to believe and live out the stereotypes and stigmas. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts, and you cannot help but play that role. Since I live in a home now, I have peace of mind for the first time since I was a kid, and I no longer see myself in that role. I'm becoming a person in the eyes of society again. Did you ever see me when I was without a home? For many Americans, poverty is seen and epitomized as those children the TV viewers are asked to sponsor for 28 cents a day. Children a world away, surrounded by trash, decay, and garbage. People who live without access to adequate drinking water or those who live from cent to cent without much hope. Too many. Poverty is still abstract and distant. However, this, sadly, is not the case, and I'm living proof that it isn't. Do you know what it feels like to be without hope, a silver lining? Day after day, I constantly ask myself, where would I rest my head? Where would my next meal come from? You ask about my job situation? Well, it's mighty difficult to find a job when your immediate needs aren't being met. Yeah, I know what you might say. If I had a job that pays, then I get out of that situation. Simple, right? But it's not. For me, my debilitating health renders hope for a job minuscule. Who would hire a health liability? It's easy to judge my situation while you have a full stomach. Sure, give me your spirit change. Sure, give me a cutout of the classifieds. To you, I may be invisible all other invisible people all over Rome, Atlanta, and your city are anything but. But what I really want, what I really need is for someone to talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me and treat me like a person. My name is James. I am educated, well-read, and articulate. I am a victim of circumstances. I would never choose this for myself. So please don't treat me like I do. I can see in your eye that you have asked questions of people like me. You judge us before you even know us. Treat us like people. Say, hey, don't feel obligated to give, but please give us the time of day for a passing greeting. We want to welcome to the show Dorika Watson, a community organizer who was involved in the very first Facing Project, Facing Poverty. Dorika, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to join you all today. I'm so excited to have you on and uh, 
How did you first get involved in working on initiatives on combating poverty in our community? Yeah, I often tell people I didn't find poverty. Poverty found me. Um, I absolutely grew up um, as an under-resourced child. And from there, I grew up then to be an under-resourced adult. And when I I think about that process, um, I I really began to say, I just, I don't, I want to be as far away from poverty as I could possibly be. And throughout my my time at Ball State, throughout obtaining my degree, there was an opportunity for um, the graduating seniors to do some volunteer time with a local nonprofit that was working on poverty alleviation. And I thought, I would like to spend my time doing anything but that. It kind of felt like I was going to be serving a prison sentence, and I was more interested in serving that sentence than showing up at a community event with an organization that focused solely on poverty. But um, I quickly found out that not only was that um, my um, my background, but it would also be my future. Just really um, advocating for and walking alongside individuals who were under resourced, helping them find their voice. So the, the term poverty itself is sort of so kind of sort of pretty broad brush. Like, do you prefer to say under resourced, or what, when? How do you differentiate between you? It's really kind of how I feel in the moment. I, um, for many years, I, I didn't like to hear the word poverty mentioned. I would hear it mentioned, and I felt like I was demeaning a group of individuals. And so um, I, I stopped saying it. I would say underserved, under-resourced um, communities. And then one day someone said to me, um, if, we're, if you're going to empower individuals, allow them to own that word. And it literally changed my mindset. I used to tell a little story. Um, This will be quick, but I used to tell a little story because I absolutely love the Lion King. And there's this one point in the Lion King where the hyenas are, are saying Mufasa, right? And they're saying Mufasa. And every time they say Mufasa, they shiver and they say, say it again, say it again. And they keep saying Mufasa. And that's how I felt like, um, I wanted to help individuals who are in poverty represent themselves. Um, like every time you say poverty, know that someone is, is overcoming, that they, um, they continue to fight every single day, that they're working hard, and kind of that same shiver that, that would happen with Mufasa. And so from that point forward, and that's probably been 12 or 13 years ago, from that point forward, I was very comfortable saying the word poverty. Yeah, so there's uh, multiple different types of poverty that folks talk about, uh, including like situational, generational, and cyclical. Could you kind of uh, break those down a little bit for us? Yeah, so I am a person that is pretty basic in terms of my definition of poverty. You definitely have that generational poverty where you're looking at multiple generations, at least two, as you look back. My mother was in poverty. My mother's mother was in poverty. So therefore, I am in poverty and generational poverty. You have that situational poverty where something just happened, maybe a loss of job, maybe a pandemic, something happened to cause um, to cause that poverty. And you have that cyclical poverty where, you know, as you look around, you have <clears throat> multiple people in that area that are also dealing with poverty. But I, I really like to look at poverty a little, a little broader than that. Um, I define it personally by the extent to which an individual does without resources. 
So for me, it doesn't matter um, if it's financial. Financial is one aspect of an individual. That's not a whole person. So um, is it financial? Is it emotional? Is it social? Is it mental? Is it is it physical? Is it spiritual? I think if you are absent of a resource, that could have you in a particular poverty. I remember going to a meeting uh, to become a volunteer with Teamwork for Quality Living. That's where I first met you, and you were like one yes. of the instructors. And then we had many sessions uh, through throughout the years, uh, and you were educating folks like me on kind of what 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 that term meant, how it applied in our community, and through teamwork. Like, what kind of uh, poverty did you see the most? So a lot of the poverty that we um, saw with teamwork was generational poverty. A number of people um, who had only known the struggle, the financial struggle. And unfortunately, sometimes when you are dealing with the financial struggle, the community looks at you with this very negative lens. Um, And so we really wanted to change not only the face of poverty, but how individuals Um, interacted with individuals in poverty because it's really difficult to become empowered when everywhere you step, someone looks at you less than because you are financially under-resourced. And so, um, yeah, primarily generational poverty is what we saw. Occasionally, there was some situational, but primarily generational poverty. Mm -hmm. And also with your work, um, you often led uh, what are called poverty simulations and which kind of walk, walked folks like me through some of the realities uh, that folks might face. And so can you kind of describe like what those trainings were like? Yeah. So a poverty simulation is a two and a half hour role play. Everyone comes in, they're given an identity in this quasi town that we refer to as Realville. And in Realville, there are up to about 90 participants and everyone has a different role. And so you may be a person who's employed, you may be unemployed, you may be married, you may be single, you may be a grandparent who's taking care of, of, your, of your grandchildren. And then there are all of the community workers. And so every Um, type of organization that you would find in a community is represented in Realville. So there's an employer, there's a doctor's office, there's a grocery store, there's a bank, kind of going along those lines. There's social service agencies. And so the intention is that someone would attempt to survive in poverty um, for the course of one month. And one month is broken down into four 15-minute weeks that's played out in about two and a half hours. Yeah, I um, I volunteered. I went through a couple of those. I volunteered for those. And every time I volunteered, I was always given the role of like the drug dealer. I don't know what okay. that said, what you guys thought about me, but that's the, that's the role I got uh, about every time. So like what aha moments did you see like through those poverty simulations? And like what is something that like hit people that they didn't realize maybe before going through that activity? Yeah, I think one of the things that... Um, it was a pretty frequent aha moment is that um, individuals often entered the poverty simulation thinking that individuals who were in poverty were just lazy, that weren't working hard at all. And I believe many left that, that simulation realizing that often the harder, you know, that the arithmetic of life doesn't often work out for individuals who are under-resourced. And so realizing that they were working hard, but something happened in their neighborhood that they couldn't um, prevent. Um, Something happened 
um, in their community or something may have been taken or they they went they paid a bill, but they didn't have a receipt. So no one trusted the fact that you actually had paid a bill. So there were a lot of aha moments. Um, and we reckoned with a lot of judgments that had been made about, you know, financially um, under-resourced people. So those ahas were really clear. Um, another aha that, that just comes to mind is um, with education, um, how um, a lot of a school, there, there's this poem that said um, something, I don't know the, the exact title, but it's because I ain't got no pencil. And so um, I don't know if you're familiar with that poem, but there's this little boy who's telling the story and all of the things that he had to do to get ready to go to school. And then his teacher basically dismissed him because he didn't have a pencil and um, just totally um, disregarded all of his um, his his um, attempts to make you know, life as good as he could make it. And so um, I think, again, going back to the educational piece, just realizing the cost of um, a field trip for a family who is financially under-resourced, the cost of special crayons or pencils that are required in particular classrooms. If the, the old basic number two pencil doesn't work because you have to have a $10 pack of pencils that don't last you any time, what that, um, what that could be um, how that could be um, for a family. So I think a lot of aha moments were happening, just realizing that some of those stereotypes that one would feel about the poor were just not true. So you, you say that like, you grew up under-resourced and then later in your life, you helped people who were under-resourced. How did that experience of, of working with people, did it, how did it change you? I think, goodness, um, Kelsey, that, that question... I think I'm still changing. You know, I, I don't think that um, that I will ever be stagnant again in my life. Um, I think that I realize um, being an under-resourced person, I didn't have voice, choice, or power. And it often felt like things were happening to me. And so I realized that I was able to get beyond that place and not because I was able to do it, you should be able to do it too. But because I was able to do it, let's walk together so that that increases your opportunity, that, that web of support, so to speak. Let's, let's help make this community a better place. And I think that's probably the one thing that I learned that I could give back, that no one does anything in isolation. We all need someone to, to make it. We all need someone to see the best in us. And not only could I see the best in the families that, that I walked alongside, they could also see the best in me. Like some of my best attributes came out because someone who, who was under-resourced believed in me. Like, you know, someone said to me before, who would have thunk it? You know, like who really, really would have thought that that could be the case? But we often discount individuals, again, based on what they're able to to do financially, but that's not the whole person. That's literally just the arm, but you've got the rest of the body. Yeah. And so um, I've probably learned more, um, Kelsey, over the last 15 years than than I have given to anyone else. Well, I mean, you certainly gave a lot to those of us who were involved and, and who you taught. So I, I appreciate Thank that. You. So what, what can you. communities do and what have you seen that works to better support their neighbors um, living in poverty? Yeah, I think the one thing for me that that I am a huge advocate for is relationships. 
One of my favorite quotes, human relationship is the sledgehammer that obliterates every societal difference. I believe that when we take the time to create a relationship, specifically with someone that's different from us, magic can happen. And so if a community wants to help um, heal the community, um, no better way to do that than to build a relationship with someone that's in the middle of that, that struggle or on the, on the front lines so that they could say how it would be best to help me get to where I want to go. So again, that relationship is key. If we're not willing to make it, what we'll see is the same thing happening over and over again. Because, and, and I'm guilty of this too. When I first started the work, I really had this, we build it, they come mentality. Like, I know what's best for you. You just show up and I'll give you what you need. And if you don't show up, it's because you don't want it bad enough. And I realized that's just a trick of the enemy. That is not true at all. We can't believe that we know what's best for someone else because we do not. And so we have to ask the right questions and connect with people and develop that that trust. And if those things happen, the relationship can be developed and then we can walk hand in hand and begin to solve all sorts of problems. Poverty is just one, but we can solve so many things by building true relationships. So it's really easy to go through life and just kind of uh, all of a sudden you're in your own bubble and you're looking around and everyone else kind of looks like you and has had your life experiences. Like, how do we get people out of those bubbles and connecting with people who have different lived experiences? You know, I think if I really had the um, the answer to that, I'd probably be a millionaire and I would not be in the place that I am right now. But I think that if, if we want better, we have to do better. And so I don't think that we're going to be able to force anyone to do anything. But there was there is this quote. Um, as a matter of fact, Molly, it's, it's a Molly Flotter quote. And I don't even know if she remembers it, but I, I, I hear people's words and then I'll recite them later and someone will give me credit. And I'm like, but it wasn't me that said it. But she said something along the lines of um, with poverty, um, we could absolutely do nothing and maybe it'll go away or maybe it'll be so bad that it'll rip the fabric of our community so much so that we will not be able to recognize it. And what I take that to mean is that it doesn't matter if you are in financial poverty, it doesn't matter. But if someone in your community is, then you are affected by it. And why not figure out how we can be the solution instead of continuing to move that problem forward? And so it really takes that opportunity to say, if we want change, we have to be more than just doing lip service. We have to be really ready to walk it out. Now, I will tell you, there are some organizations that make that relationship a little safer. You know, you don't just walk up to in the grocery store and say, hey, I see that you're in poverty. Let's be friends. You know, we, we don't do that. So you, you have to go to trusted individuals to start that relationship. I don't, you know, I, now it can happen in a different way, but I think when it happens in a different way, we don't get to know everyone and understand the hidden rules in which that have allowed us all to thrive and live our lives. Well, Zarika, you've been the nexus of so many of those relationships in, in our community. And just thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for all of your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you.
James's story was written in collaboration with Matt Pulford for Facing Hope in Rome, Georgia, and was performed by Curtis Martis. Sonia Johnson's story was written in collaboration with Angie Rogers Howe for a Midsummer Night's Narrative Storytelling Festival and was performed by Terry Whit Bailey. Extra special thanks to our partners at the Muncie Civic Theater. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspire action. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others.